All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, please. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. The message is entitled, Follow Godly Examples. And this is part two. Part one was last week. Um, In our last study, we looked at the first exhortation to follow godly men whose conduct matched the gospel. And it was characterized by three things in verses 17 through 19. First was a proclamation to follow godly people in verse 17. Second, the explanation for following godly people in verse 18. Then you had the description of the ungodly people in verse 19. The explanation for the exhortation we said was twofold. The first explanation was presented as a negative reason to bring about positive results of godliness in the life of the believer in verse 18 and 19. The second is presented in the positive, which we'll look at tonight, verse 20 and 21. And then beginning chapter 4, 1 through 9, there will be other exhortations that will follow. So let's look at the second explanation to follow the godly example of Paul, including others, uh, presented in the positive that is marked by three reasons. Verse 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so the three reasons are given to us here, which is the second explanation. First, the believer is waiting to go home, verse 20. Secondly, the believer is waiting for a glorified body, the first part of 21. And thirdly, the believer is waiting to experience that transition, the rest of 21. We begin here with the believer is waiting to go home. The longer you are in the Lord, the longer you feel more of a stranger in this world. Especially nowadays with the corruption and all the things that have gone on at lightning speed. And I'm sure other generations that lived in such a time as ours and their nations and depending on what point of history. But the gospel is light. This world is darkness. And when we come to Christ, our life changes altogether, our perspective, our worldview. Notice the Apostle Paul declared to the Philippians that they were to follow Paul and others' godly example because of their present identity. Listen to his words. For our citizenship is in heaven. That's why we live godly. Paul understood clearly that though they were present on earth, they no longer belong to this world. The word citizenship means a, a commonwealth or state that people are joined or united under or to. The same word but in a, diff- in a verb form, appears already earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, only let your conduct, same word, but in the verb form, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It refers to their conduct or manner of life of a citizen in heaven. Our is emphatic, place at the beginning. 
There's a contrast between them, the enemies of the cross, and our citizenship. Their citizenship's here on earth. Our citizenship's in heaven. Big, great contrast here. The word originally described one who lived in a, as a citizen of a free state, as a responsible partner who worked for the highest good of that community. We get our word um, politics from it. Kind of ironic, huh? Because <laughs> politics, when it's, it's not at the beginning of a nation, when it's pure and there's passion and there's goals, then it becomes corrupt. Philippi, as you know, was a Roman colony, and in spite of the long distance between the two cities, Rome and Philippi, they were citizens of Rome. It was a miniature Rome. All Roman cities were constructed the same. If you've ever gone to Europe, to Madrid, Spain, you go to any Latin American city, this main city, they're all the same. Okay, the center of town, different things. So they were to conduct themselves as worthy citizens of Rome, even though they were so far. So here Paul says, now you should make that application to your citizenship in heaven. You're far away from home, but you still have to conduct yourself according to where you're really from. Paul reminded them that their citizenship was in heaven at the present time. The location is said to be simply heaven. The word um, basically means the vaulted expanse of the sky or the thinned out space. The Bible teaches that there are three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the planets and the stars are. And the third heaven is where God dwells. And you can find the three heavens in Genesis of the opening chapters and the third heaven you also find in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, where Paul says, I know a man in Christ about 13 years ago, they're in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He was caught up to the third heaven and heard things not lawful to be uttered. That's where God dwells. Now, the context of our text is where God dwells. It's not where the birds fly, it's not where the planets are. Every believer on the earth is a citizen of some country, whether they live in Europe, whether they live in um, Latin America or North America, that they're a citizen here for a while in some country. Their allegiance is to that nation, their loyalty is to the leaders of that nation, and the believer, wherever he may dwell as a pilgrim and sojourner here, away from his true citizenship, will remain faithful to that nation and leaders wholeheartedly until that nation or those leaders contradict the word of God. That's when we do not obey any government. It's very clear in Scripture. Every believer on the earth is a citizen of heaven then. Their devotion is to Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Our obedience is to the word of God above the words of man. Our priority is the things of God and the things of heaven. We used to live in such a way, now we don't. We used to have priorities in the world, now we have different priorities. 
We used to spend our money on certain things. Now we spend them differently. We used to buy whatever we wanted to. Now we pray about what we buy. It's a whole different lifestyle. Um, we used to talk like sailors. Uh, now we, we talk a little different. Um, th- there's been a radical change from within that manifests itself from without. Then notice the Apostle Paul declared to the Philippians they were to follow Paul and others' godly example because of their present expectation, not only their citizenship, their identity, but their present expectation, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminded them of their eager anticipation uh, of Jesus. When we first got born again in the early 70s, um, in the early 70s, uh, late 60s, uh, vans became a big thing. Everybody had vans, and, 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 and we got saved, and that's when the Jesus movement was going on in Costa Mesa. And we would just fill up our vans and take a bunch of friends and young kids, and they get saved. Uh, and we only knew one thing. Jesus was coming. Uh, we carried a Bible, but we didn't know much of the Bible. We knew we were saved, and Jesus was coming. There was a passion. Jesus was coming. So we were not doing what we used to do. We were just, we were having Bible studies on Friday night, Saturday night, during the day, whatever it was. We were just reaching out to people. Jesus was coming. Now, if you have lost the passion that Jesus is coming, you're in trouble. Because that passion should never wane. It should grow. The longer you are here in this dark world, the older you get. You should feel more of a stranger every day in this world doesn't mean we hate this world. doesn't mean we understand that there's dark and we understand that, that you know, it's, it's different from our lives. But nevertheless, God has put us in this world to reach out to the lost. Uh, the boat belongs in the water. It's when the water gets in the boat that the boat gets in trouble. Okay? The phrase eager, eagerly wait means to expect fully and completely It is made up of three words. To receive and welcome a friend who comes to visit. The second is to withdraw one's attention from things and objects. And thirdly, to be out, which intensifies the first two, implying yearning. I mean, you're you're expecting, you're you're looking. You know, your friend says, you know, I'm going to pick you up in ten minutes. You're waiting a half hour and you're looking out that window. You're expecting, you're waiting. That's the picture. Jesus would be coming from heaven, notice. So their focus was to be constantly from that direction. Not earthbound, but heavenly bound. We used to be earthbound. That's what we live for. That's what we work for. That's what we collected. That's what we focused on. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.7, Hebrews 9.28, looking to Jesus from heaven. He's coming. Do you believe that? If you do, then your life will demonstrate it. You will be living like a citizen of heaven. The tense um, is the indicative present middle voice. That means it's It is going on in the present and continuously ongoing 
as an expectation. The middle voice always indicates the individual being a participant and the one yielding to that. No one can do it for you. It is you who do this. The plural pronoun we refers to Paul, the Philippians, and every believer that will ever read this letter in whatever generation. You see, the thing that's great is that the Bible is the same in every generation. The church is the same in every generation. And there should be no difference. Now, when you start hearing and seeing the church change its language and redefining biblical terms and redefining the church and its mission and its goal, then you know that's not the church. All right? So you open your Bible and you listen to what people say and you examine if that lines up with the Bible. If it doesn't, get away from them. Go find the church, the church of Jesus Christ, and join it. Don't just go to church, but be the church. Notice the identity of the one they are waiting for is the Savior. Soter, it means deliverer. The title was conferred to men who had um, befitted and benefited their countries as deliverers, like the Old Testament judges. The context here is the Savior delivered from sin and death. There is no article, and it's emphatic, referring to Jesus that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul names him, who the Savior is. Lord Curios, the title indicating a supreme authority, a master, the one who calls the shots. The word is used as a title of respect, sir. In Matthew 13, 29. In Spanish, in, in Mexican families, Latin families, <clears throat> out of respect, the son will say to his father, Señor, when he calls him, Señor, sir. Meaning, he is the authority. Same thing. No different. The word is used of the master of the house in Luke twelve forty six. The word is used of a husband in 1 Peter 3, 6, as a type of Christ, not as some despot. The name Jesus, as you know, is, means Yahweh's salvation, representing his humanity, a real man at a real set time in history that existed. And Jesus, a translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yahweh's salvation, the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1.14, God became man, the humanity, Jesus. Now you have Christ, another title, identifying that deity, the anointed, the Messiah of God. Jesus delivered the believer from sin and death by His death on the cross. He tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.9 and 14. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. The propitiation, that which satisfied the wrath of God, the demands of God, of sin and death. Someone that was spotless. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins, plural, of the world, everybody. God's so good. He's called the Savior of the world. 
Where did he get that title? Not in Jerusalem, in Samaria. It's kind of ironic, huh? <laughs> that Samaritan woman in John 4, 42. The believer does not belong to himself, <clears throat> but to Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. You know, a foreigner who lives in another country, they stay connected to their country because of their love for their homeland. They will go to a neighborhood that perhaps has immigrants of their nationality and, and they buy newspaper back home and they stay in contact with letters and they, because their heart is there and they know they're going to return one day. They know they're just visiting here or by necessity maybe for work or whatever it is. But they stay connected because that's where their heart is. And so with each of us, that's the way it's to be now. You know, that's why we study the word. That's why we pray. That's why we seek the Lord. Because we're just pilgrims well, just passing through. And one day the Lord will take us home as we'll see. And he tells us how it will be here. Now the believer um, obtained his or her citizenship by being born again to the kingdom of God. In John 3, 3 through 5. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, you, get, you don't get into the kingdom of God or you don't go to heaven because you're rich or because you've done a lot of good deeds or because you belong to a certain family or because you didn't do certain things. You get to heaven because you agree with God that you um, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that there's nothing that you have or nothing you can do to merit salvation or forgiveness and that I must agree with God that I am a sinner. Um, separated from God, literally an enemy of God. And if I will agree who I am and that he died in my place and paid the price for me, I can call upon him and he will forgive me and change my heart and my mind. That's what being born again is. Very, very clear. Recognizing that once I'm born again, that I've got to... Yield to the Lord's Holy Spirit, His Word, crucifying the old man daily, as Romans 6, 6, and 11 says. So the believer is therefore, once again, as I said, a stranger, a pilgrim, a sojourner, um, feeling less at home the longer he's here and the world, the darker it gets because it's so opposite so contrary to what uh, God has called us to be. And yet, never feeling that we're better, just that we're more privileged, that why did God save me? And then I have to answer it because I responded to him. That doesn't mean that I, I'm working for it. That doesn't mean I save myself. It means that God gives everybody one opportunity at least to be saved. Whether they accept them or not, that's a choice. God doesn't force anybody or condemn anybody to hell without ever giving them a chance if they want to go to heaven. Because everybody deserves hell. And if God just chose a few to go to heaven while condemning the rest, when both groups deserve hell, then God could not be good. He couldn't be just. He would be unfair. The only way He can be just and holy and good 
is to pay the price for all and that all have at least a chance to accept or reject. It's not that difficult. Enemies of the cross, he said, they live for this present world regarding their future. They marry the present. I'm not really concerned about the future. The Christian lives for the present because he has his eyes in the future. He understands where he's going. The believer waits trusting the word of God that Jesus is coming for his saints. We wait in faith, Romans 8.25 says. I'm sorry, Galatians 5.5. 5. The believer waits in patience too, Romans 8.25. The believer waits unto salvation, Hebrews 9.28. The believer waits for the blessed hope, that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Titus 2.13. That blessed hope for him to come for us. Jesus said he would come back to receive us to himself, that where he is there, we, we would be there also in John 14.1-3. That's the first mention of the rapture. Jesus mentioned it. Jesus ascended up to heaven in a cloud and the angels told the apostles he would return in the very same way in Acts 1.11. Jesus likens himself as to a man who's going away to a far country to receive a kingdom and return in many of his parables. And he warned the servants, watch, be ready. We have been saved, Ephesians 2.8 says. We are being saved, 1 Corinthians 1.28 says. And we shall be saved finally at the rapture or at death, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17. So we have been saved, we're being saved, and we shall be saved. It's a threefold process, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely, it's taught in Scripture. Now the believer seeks to do the will of his Lord, not his own. That's the first major change when we come to him. That's why Paul concludes after um, 11 chapters of doctrine in Romans. In chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, I beg you by the mercy of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system but be transformed, metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. So you have the same manual I do. So when you read Matthew or Luke or, or, or Romans, you should be getting the same thing I'm getting because you have the Spirit of God, you have the mind of Christ, you have the Word of God, and therefore, we should be understanding the same things. The Bible is monosyllabic. A child can understand it. The first book in American schools was the Bible. It's easy to understand in terms of the uh, wording. Now, the illumination comes by the Spirit of God. But they're not big words. I mean... 
Jesus came to speak to normal people, to shepherds, to fishermen, common people. Not all who call Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, the believer will always find himself in conflict and conviction when he says no to what he knows to be the will of God. Always. Acts 10.14, Peter, not so, Lord. What? Not in Lord? A contradiction. If he's Lord, it's yes. When God tells you no, you should be as excited as when he says yes. Because no is a protection for you. The believer is to follow godly examples, not only because there are bad examples, but because he or she is identified as a citizen of heaven. Listen to Romans 13, 11, and do this, knowing that the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. For me, about 43 years. Fast. We used to sit around and listen to a guy that used to teach us when we were first all born again, and he, his name was Popoff, and, and, um, and he would say, I've known the Lord for 25 years. Go, Whoa, 25 years? I listened to Jay Vernon McGee. He says, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I've been a pastor for 41 years. Fast. Incredible. The believers waiting to go home. I'm 67 now. I was 23 when I was born again. I'm running out of tape. <laughs> there's more behind me than there is before me I can stick my neck out and see the finish line notice secondly the believer is waiting for a glorified body the apostle Paul declared the Philippians were to follow Paul and others godly example because of their future glorification Listen to his word, who will transform our lowly bodies. Paul described the miraculous work Jesus will one day do by changing our human bodies. The word transform literally means to change the figure or form. The word is used of false apostles who change themselves outwardly and Satan into angels of light in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 14. The present bodies of the believers are called by Paul, notice, lowly bodies. The body of humiliation with all its corruption, weakness, decaying, mortality. It will be raised, but this is a lowly body. The body that is limited in many and every capacity that it possesses. We can think, and we can, man, I'm God. People, people get impressed with computers. Do you realize your mind? Your mind is a thousand times more capable than a computer. The stuff you can store up there to recall, we don't get impressed with that. But it is limited. And the older you get, the longer you have to search out the files to find something. 
And if you don't get it the first time, you may not get it until the second or third time. This body that is subject to this earth cannot enter heaven without a miraculous transformation of nature and molecular structure. This body is made for this earth alone. This body can't even go underwater unless it has some kind of artificial protection with oxygen in that. And even then you can't go too deep unless you're in some pressure capsulized module or something because you'll implode. <laughs> Paul knew the Greeks viewed the body as a prison for um, the soul from which it would one day be liberated at death. But the Greeks lived for the physical body, as you know. They admired as well as uh, worship a well-developed body, an aspect of being divine reflected in their sculptural statutes, statutes, you know, just beautiful, ornate ones, always the bare-naked body. They, they just thrived in it. They dedicated themselves to exercise in the gymnasium. That's where the word comes from. Athletic games. They had no boundaries for sexuality, be it heterosexual or homosexual. They saw suicide as freeing of the soul from the body. Now, the Christian is not to have this view of his or her physical body. The Bible gives us a different worldview of our body and our soul and spirit. Regardless of what physical condition our body is in, whether I am healthy, whether I am sick, whether I am incapacitated, my body is a temple of God. It's not my own. I am never a prisoner in my body. As long as God allows me to be alive, breathing, on whatever state I am, be it through illness or accident, I am here by appointment. He is very well able to take my breath away any time he wants. I have no right to do that. I've been bought with a price. I'm to glorify God in my body and my spirit, which are God's, 1 Corinthians 6.20. So I never see my spirit or soul as a prisoner of my body. And that's why we do not believe that suicide is allowed or a Christian practice. It is a pagan practice. It is a practice of absolute despair and hopelessness. That's the reason why we came to Christ, because we had no hope. If you're going to take your life, you should do it before you come to Christ, not after you come to Christ. Now you have the greatest hope. You were jacked up. Now you're saved. You were lost. Now you're found. 
God releases our spirit from our body when he chooses. The Bible says no murder shall enter the kingdom of God. Many people say, yeah, but what if they repent? What if? What if you're wrong? Why would you take your life if you're a Christian? Five people in the Bible commit suicide. You have Saul, his armor bearer, the Jewish king, Ahithophel, Judas Iscariot. You want to hang out with these five? Not one of them was in good light with God at the time. I give you no hope for suicide at all as a Christian. And many pastors speak very positive on it. Woe to them. Because the Bible speaks very negative five times on suicide. Be careful what you say about suicide, Christian. Be real careful. Notice Paul, the apostle, declared the Philippians were to follow Paul and others' godly example because also of their future glorified bodies would be just like the body of Jesus. Not only are they going to be glorified, but just like the body of Jesus. Um, he says that it may be conformed to his glorious body. So Paul gave the Philippians a vivid picture of the state of their transformed body here. The word conform means having the same form as another. Fashion is a good word. Um, the body that Jesus had after the resurrection uh, was a glorified body, as you know. The body was distinctly different from the one they placed in the tomb. And the root word for conform is morphe, the same Greek word that is translated form in Philippians 2.6 to describe the outward expression of the inner nature of Jesus, who being in the form of God. Same word. The body of Jesus before his death and burial had human weaknesses and limitations, as you know. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He needed to drink water. He bled. He died. Okay? Quite different after the resurrection. Paul knew that the body of Jesus went through a radical transformation after death and resurrection. The word glorious uh, means magnificent, majestic, superior in the context here. Related to the old body, but a new body. Related to the old body, but with new capacities. Jesus was transfigured at his, um, and, and he was glorified in state his condition on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember, in Matthew 17, 1 and 2, which literally was a preview of the second coming. Moses and Elijah were there. They were speaking of his exodus of this world. He's glorified there. He's coming back. The glorious body of Jesus was fit for heaven and earth after the resurrection. Jesus made himself unrecognizable at the tomb to Mary, though and she thought he was the gardener in John 20, 19. Jesus could be touched. Mary clung to him. Thomas touched his hands and his sides in John 20, 17 and 27. 
Jesus could travel in space and time instantly to Galilee. Matthew 28, 7. Jesus also ate with the apostles. Luke 24, 41 through 43. And John 21, 10 through 13. And when he ate the fish, it didn't fall to the ground. Jesus entered the room where the apostles were. And um, the doors were shut. And being shut, he, finally, he suddenly appeared. Whether he came through the wall, down the ceiling, or just appeared, we don't know. But he didn't use the door. <laughs> so you have some similarities, but there's a complete different body. It's glorified. It's like when you plant bulbs, you know, you go down the Home Depot or Lowe's or something, you, grab, you buy some of these ugly bulbs, and you make a hole and you stick it in the dirt, and all of a sudden it sprouts up this beautiful, beautiful flower, just beautiful. And, and if you would just dig it up and then cut that stem off and then put one thing here, the bulb, and then the flower over here, you would never see any likeness of one for the other. But you know there's a connection, right? The same it will be with the resurrection. The believer eagerly waits for the redemption of his body. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 23. Um, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption of the redemption of our body. The person who denies the resurrection of our bodies is denying the resurrection of Christ and implying God's word is false. Listen to Paul's argument as he tells the Corinthians because the Corinthians were denying the physical resurrection and they were Christians. Very dangerous. Listen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, Paul says... Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's talking to the Corinthian Christians. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable or the most to be pitied. You deny the physical resurrection, it has severe implications to all of God's revelation. The believer knows Jesus defeated death and he is the first of many to follow his kind of resurrection. It's called first fruit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. But now... Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, 
even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruit, Christ the world first. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. First Corinthians 15, 23. Now you remember Jesus rose from the dead? Matthew 27. And then after he rose from the dead, some of the saints, the graves were open. They were walking around Jerusalem. As evidence, the resurrection was real. Okay? <laughs> Amazing. He will raise us up at his coming. At the rapture. You're instantly present with the Lord if you die right now. We'll look at this in the last point. And then when he returns for the church, your body will be glorified. That's when it's going to be done. Now the mocking and doubts of people about the resurrection are to be answered. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15, 35-38 says that there's a relationship but not a resemblance. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one? He just rebukes them. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but merely grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Like the illustration of that bulb and that plant. The two bodies are completely different. Listen to Paul again in um, 1 Corinthians 15, 42-46. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, not the second, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterwards the spiritual. You were born of your mother, the natural, the first, and then you were born again, the spiritual, the second. That's the order. So the believer is waiting for a glorified body. And the older you get and the longer you're around, the more you're looking for that new body. When you're young, you can't ever imagine needing glasses. Are you kidding? Or anything else that comes with age. <laughs> but time and gravity takes care of all that. Notice, thirdly, the believer is waiting to experience the transition. That's what we're waiting for. The rest of 21, the Apostle Paul declared to the Philippians, Jesus would transform our lowly bodies and conform them to his glorious body by his innate measure of power. Listen to his word. According to the working by which he is able. Paul indicated that the measure of power Jesus has is more than adequate. The word working, energia, does it sound familiar? Energy? <laughs> it means active energy with the idea of working efficiency. This is the only time the word appears in the New Testament. In other words, 
the needed and sufficient power to get the job done in proportion to the demand of the task. Working efficiently is equal as to his person, ensuring he is able. We get the word dynamite from, from it. It's the same root as in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power, dunamis. The power of the Holy Spirit, divine power. By virtue of one's own ability and resources. He is God. Adequate, efficient, sufficient, never lacking. The personal pronoun he refers to Jesus who is God incarnate, the God-man, who will accomplish this miraculous act of raising the dead in a glorified body. Now, to you and I, well, how's he? Don't worry about it. No problem for him. The attributes of God's power is omnipresent. It's all, he's present at all times, but power is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's not lacking anything. In fact, Jesus demonstrated he had power to lay down his life and to take it up again, he said in John 10, 18. You, you do know that not only the Father raised him up, but he raised himself up, right? The Father raised him, he raised himself, and the Spirit raised him. All three are attributed to the resurrection. All three are attributed to creation, too. Three persons, one God. Jesus being God by the very same power will raise up your body and mine. Jesus likewise, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. He destroyed him, all his authority. Jesus, being God by the very same power, allows the believer to live this new life of godliness, as Paul and others, he has mentioned in verse 17. The very same power that allows you to live for the glory of God is the very same power that is able to transform your body into that glorified state. No power. Lacking at all. You know, we have to, well, is, is that a 9-volt? Is that a 12-volt? Is that, whatever you need, plug it in with God. It, it'll work. You don't have to worry about it. Nor did the apostle Paul here declare to the Philippians that the innate power of Jesus is limitless then and boundless, even to subdue all things to himself. So Paul stated that the potential power of God for the resurrection is, listen, inexhaustible. The word subdue is a military term and it means to line up under or in order. This is the only time the word appears in the epistle to the Philippians, but the word is used for all things the Father has put under the feet of Jesus in terms of having authority right now in Ephesians 1.22. And also for a husband and wife submitting to one another in Ephesians 5.21 in marriage. The idea behind the word subdue is not one of forceful control that is unjust 
or brings harm, but rather for effectiveness. The picture is one of being more powerful than anything or person in existence. The picture is one of the efficiency of that power to make all things created work properly and people if they yield to God. The picture is one of the creator who is greater than his creation. No problem for him. You ever thought what it takes to keep the sun going? About the moon. How about the earth, a thousand miles per hour? And having the nerve to hang it on nothing. How would you like to steer uh, Arcturus or the Pleiades? Incredible. Notice Paul stated that the potential power of God is undeniably efficient. The tense of the word subdue. Hupotasso is the error's active. This indicates a definite act of subduing to bring under order and efficiency in the past and the ongoing act of subduing to bring under order and efficiency things and people. Ongoing. Things are in the control of God. People have to yield to God. God doesn't force anybody. It's a mind blower. God who controls the heavens, who can do whatever he created, everything. He does not force you. Wow. The number of things he is able to subdue is clear. Listen, all things to himself, not just the resurrection of the bodies. There is nothing in creation that God was not in control in the past or in the present in creation, nor is anything or any part of creation more powerful than God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things are created that are in heaven and earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or power. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Listen, and in him all things consist. They're held together. Positive charges should repel. And they do. What holds them together? The atom. Colossians says it's Jesus. After the thousand year reign, everything goes up in smokes, fire. God just tells the atom, release. Nuclear bomb. Everything material has the potential of blowing up. If you split the atom, that's what they did during World War II. Atom bomb. There's rebellion in humanity. Therefore, it divides people into two groups. You have those who presently repent and accept the Lord and yield to him under his rule and control, and those who rebel and resist to their own hurt. The scripture says in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not Love his brethren. 1 John 3.10 So there's two families. Family of God, family of Satan. 
Children of obedience, children of disobedience. There will be one day all things subdued unto himself after the kingdom age. That's when it happens. In Corinthians, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, when he puts an end of all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is cast into the lake of fire at the end of the white throne judgment. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, all things have been put under his feet, but we see, still see now some things that aren't subject to him. But at the end of the thousand years and after the white throne judgment, everything will be subject to him in the eternal glory of the new heavens and new earth. And even Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, will be subject in another way that we don't understand. All, God will be all in all. Right now he works as a threefold person in the working of salvation and in the course of the age of grace, but it's going to be something different then. He's very clear on this. Now, it baffles our mind, and we look at God, and we have problems with some of the things, but yet, remember Jeremiah began to question God when he was in jail about him returning the captivity of Israel from Babylon. And what did God tell Jeremiah? Listen to his words. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Simple. There's only one correct answer. No. No. It's a rhetorical question. So the believer will be raised in a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 again, 20, 51 to 54. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye. At the last trump, for the trump will sound. The dead in Christ will rise first, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Wow. The believer at death is present with Christ and waits for his resurrected body. Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. That's the first time he says it. For we who are in this tent, this is what this body is, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, not mortality, that mortality may be swallowed up of life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in this body, this tent, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. The minute you die, you're instantly present. Your glorified body will not happen until the Lord raises you up. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. In fact, John puts it this way. 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that even though that we shall be called the children of God, therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, the second coming, at the rapture, when he comes for us, then the second coming, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is, and everyone who has his hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. First John 3, 1 through 3. So when the rapture, the rapture happens right now, our bodies would be changed, glorified on the way up. And the dead in Christ would rise and be joined to their spirits as they're coming down to meet us in the cloud. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17. That's when your glorified body is joined. And so the believer is waiting for, to experience this transition. Can't wait. We pray even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so, we have looked at the second explanation for the Philippians to follow. The godly example of Paul and others marked by these three reasons. That's the explanation. The believer is waiting to go home. The believer is waiting for a glorified body. And the believer is waiting to experience that transition. It will happen. Whether you experience first putting your body in the grave and receiving your glorified body later, or whether the Lord, you are alive when the rapture happens and it happens at the same time, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it will happen. It's called the blessed hope. Father, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. We thank you for tonight. We pray you continue to deal with our hearts. Thank you for your word, Lord, the hope we have in you. We pray, Lord, you continue to guide and direct us, and Lord, as we keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, I pray anybody here present or over the radio or just the internet, that, Lord, you would make yourself known to them, Lord, your love, your grace for them, that they would call on your name, you would forgive them, Lord, and they would just enter your kingdom. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. To call upon the name of the Lord, that he might forgive you. It's your prayer of repentance. No one can do it for you. If this is your desire, if God has convicted you, and you see your need of God to be saved, that is a work of God and a miracle. This is your prayer to God if you want to be saved. And he's going to forgive you right now. You can repeat it to him, not to us, but to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.